1: Get started today at try That's trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D dot com.
2: Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me today are Spike's Deputy Editor Tom Slater, hello, hello, and Spike Economist Tim Black. Hi. This week on the podcast, Brexit, Saudi Arabia, and Elizabeth Warren goes native. But before we begin, Tom Slater is also the host of Spike's Last Orders podcast, Tom, can you tell us a bit about Last Orders?
1: Sure. So Last Orders is the Spike podcast and all things Nanny State. We do it every month with Chris Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs, who's the kind of great anti-Puritan in all of this discussion. Um, And we've relaunched this month, new podcast feed. So do um, search for Last Orders on iTunes and sign up, both for the first episode, which um, we've got with the great comedian Simon Evans, talking about um, woke Coke users when the Nanny State backfires, as well as are the Tories now the real Puritan party. And we'll be making a new episode every month, so sign up if you want to listen to that.
2: So that's Last Orders. Listen to the first episode with Simon Evans, and make sure you subscribe. What has now emerged is the idea that an option to extend the implementation period could be a further solution to this issue of the backstop in, uh, in Northern Ireland. This
1: prolongation of the transition period
2: probably
0: will,
1: will happen as a good idea. During the transition period, the EU will be able to make our laws, the ECJ will be able to judge our laws, and we will have to pay for the privilege.
2: Theresa May has refused to rule out the idea of Britain remaining under EU rules for three years after the official leaving date in March 2019. The so-called transition period could be extended to give the UK and the EU extra time to hammer out a long-term deal. Tom, I mean, this is the just the latest
1: capitulation from May, isn't it? What What do you make of it? Well, it's it's, an, it's a bureaucratic and technical mess, um, and I think what always happens with anything to do with the EU, there's a lot of questions about rules and about prior agreements, are really just a cover for the kind of EU's pretty ruthless negotiating um, tactics but just to kind of get through the weeds of it quickly this week was really supposed to be all about the backstop so really at the beginning of these negotiations both the EU and the UK um, made this agreement that they didn't want the um, any new border on the island of Ireland and therefore they would make that Um, something which was secured at the end of the withdrawal agreement. We're supposed to come to the end of the withdrawal agreement this week and that hasn't happened. The reason for this was way back in December both the government and the EU agreed to this thing called the backstop which would effectively um, keep part of the UK in the customs union and part of the single market if in the event of no solutions being found at the end of the withdrawal process and the transition period so that things could keep moving. The big schism was the fact that the EU wanted that only to apply to Northern Ireland, effectively kind of annexing Northern Ireland and keeping it in the customs union and parts of the single market. And Theresa May, in response to this attempt to kind of annex part of her territory, offered up the entire United Kingdom and said that this would be the solution. Um, But the problem was, is that never has really been resolved. The EU has stuck to their guns that it should only be Northern Ireland. May can't do that for obvious political reasons. The DUP, the Unionist Party, prop up her government at the moment. Um, And even her attempts to first of all, offer this UK-wide customs agreement, but also have some sort of time limit on it so that we wouldn't just be kept in kind of permanent customs limbo and the effect of it ever being um, put into place have just been completely dismissed. So now we're at the position where this longer transition period is being talked about effectively as another form of backstop, if you see what I mean. This is just the latest capitulation in a long line of them. And just to kind of try and cut through all of this, I think what we're effectively seeing is the cumulative effect of the government's cowardice, its refusal to stand up to the EU, its willingness to accept what the EU says are very important hardline rules and processes, when, as anyone could see, this was an attempt to just effectively try and bounce us into the softest of all possible... And that's really what's coming to the fore now. And I think the biggest danger is it's created sufficient chaos, sufficient dysfunction politically, economically, all the rest of it, that it's really putting more kind of wind at the backs of the people who are trying to say, look how terribly complicated Brexit is. Why don't we not do it in the first place? But I think the point we have to remember is this is a problem entirely of maze making by just giving in to all of these ridiculous demands from the off.
2: I think that's absolutely right. And it's, it's interesting that in the papers, especially the pro-Brussels papers, it's been described as a kind of breakthrough in the negotiations, but actually it's just yet another red line that May has been willing to cross. You know, her checkers proposal wanted to keep the UK effectively in the single market. She uses this really strange phrase, single market for goods, but there, we know there's no single market for services. So what she means is the single market. Her other pledge to take us out of the customs union is now also in tatters because of this new customs arrangement or customs solution. Tim, what do you what do you make of this?
0: I guess there's an element to it all uh, in which it's in May's interests to have a kind of um, indeterminate transitional agreement mm. uh, because it will extend um, the discussions about Brexit uh, possibly up up until uh, the next general election and possibly possibly beyond, which means she can then actually stop taking responsibility for Brexit. Also, by that point, a general election, which will probably be almost like a Brexit general election, possibly a second referendum will be on the table, certainly from the Labour Party,
1: and I think just to pick up on that is the fact that if there is a future Brexit election such as it is, it would effectively be a choice between customs union membership, probably a large dose of single market membership on the Tory side, and then most likely a second referendum, as Tim says, on the Labour side. John MacDonald, despite being a Brexiteer most of his life, has signalled that that would potentially be in a Labour manifesto. And the thing is, for a good while, the kind of breath of Leave voters was somewhat on politicians' necks. You know, they did vote for Article 50 to be um, activated. There was a sense that the will of the people had to be upheld, even if they were going to do it in very mealy-mouthed and very kind of nervous, cautious type ways. But the more things become chaotic, the more that both of the parties effectively move to some form of anti-Brexit position, then you do have to remember the fact that 75% of Parliament are pro-Remain, would quite happily take any sort of way out in order to make sure Brexit never happened. And the voices of the people will therefore be entirely silenced in that situation and I think that's one of the things which as Tim says the kick the can down the road approach from May is also entirely dishonest because I think a large part of it is the fact that where she's ending up kind of customs union membership for the UK is something that no one wants I mean, this is what even Nick Clegg calls the vassal state option. You'd be in the situation that Turkey's in, where effectively you are part of this customs union, you get some meagre benefits, but also you have to take, you know, products from other countries on a zero tariff basis, but they can put up the walls as high as they like on yours. And no one actually wants this. But as Tim says, I think it is just a, a desire to kick the can further down the road to t- not take responsibility for this and in the process either end up in a deal which is going to be just terrible on paper or just create more and more opportunities for people who really want to stop this to do so.
2: What's really striking is, you know, the absence of the leading Brexiteers, the so-called leading Brexiteers in this conversation. You know, someone like Liam Fox, who um, about a year ago, the papers were describing as some kind of hard Brexit, loony almost, is now backing May's calls for a longer transition. It's really striking how... We won the referendum, and yet all of the major political battles seem to have been won by the Remainers.
0: You will see plenty of rather sort of high profile marches in in, in central London in favour of the EU. There's one
1: happening this weekend. I'm
0: sure there is, you know, there there seems to be a lot of face paint being spent on EU flags. (laughs) at they must the have moment. sold more
1: in the last couple of months and all years than they have ever <laughs> in this country.
0: I know, but th- 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 there's nothing comparable on 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 the Brexit side. Brexit voters have been almost demoralised, or by the constant stream of uh, negative stories right, for, right from the right from the off, um, and they also don't have a particular platform apart from sometimes the question
1: time audience. Well, as Tim says, actually, this is part of the argument that Remainers and the people's vote, so called crowd make for the idea that people have changed their minds? Because look, there aren't loads of students marching on um, Whitehall, you know, with painted faces. I think if anything, Leave voters made the mistake of believing that their one conduit to make democratic change, making a vote, would be taken seriously. Mm. We all know that there are no political parties or trade unions really outside of some small and noble exceptions who give voice um, to ordinary people's desire to leave the EU, have greater democracy. And we also know that the media are far more likely to take seriously the kind of shrill demands of um, people wandering down the mall than they would ordinary people who have quite politely, as it turns out, asked to leave the European Union. And I've only seen that vote trashed ever since. But the, the question that we're confronted with now as ever is what gives force to that desire? Because really, something is needed now more than ever to make sure it's followed through. And we should always remember as well that despite all of the lies, frankly, and misrepresentations of the continuity remain campaign. Desire to leave the European Union is pretty much undented since that vote. If anything, it's probably hardened a little bit. Now we're just looking for something that can give it a little bit more force.
2: And and perhaps the no deal option is the thing that could excite, you know, fellow leavers again, because um, after all this demoralisation, there does seem to be a viable route out of it. But, you know, which leader is going to take it on is, is, I suppose, the problem. Which party is going to stand up for that? It, there doesn't seem to be one.
0: No, I don't think any political party uh, would make the case for no deal. Uh, they all seem to be playing internal political games, Labour Party especially. Um, as Tom suggested when he mentioned John MacDonald being a, a convinced lever for almost his entire political life, just like Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, they now seem to have lost, um, as far as you can tell, any sort of opinion on, on the EU. Uh, they they constantly want to turn Brexit into something which the Tories are doing mm. because then it's easy to pose against. You can say it's a Tory project, you know, as if Jacob Rees-Marg had some ingenious idea around about 2016 to somehow benefit his hedge funds or whatever it is mm. that he supposedly or an well. Or a erotic spasm. Who knows? Yeah. But there's this idea that it's almost this kind of brainchild of these um, old kind of empire nostalgists, mm. Um, mm. which is, uh, you know, complete rewriting of history. Um, they're so cynical and opportunist, yeah you know, that's the odd thing about Corbyn man um, of principle exactly he's always portrayed as this man of man of principle um you know he's, he's seen as our most authentic politician because he's he's perfectly at home on the on the allotment, um yet at the same time he's actually behave, he's actually playing the most political of all the games he's he's biting his tongue his tongue he's censoring himself he's uh you know he's hes he's very concerned about the message he wants to to put out there, to make sure it appeals to the broadest section of the electorate as possible. Mm. So actually, he, despite being called a man of principle, he's constantly obscuring those principles.
1: But I think that's why, if Brexit goes the way that it looks like it's going, I think the cost for both these parties should be incredibly great electorally, just because on the one hand, you have the Tory party, which is effectively willing to sell our vote down the river, just so that it can hold itself together and maybe hold on to power for a bit longer. And then you have the Labour party, even more pathetically, that is... The leadership of which is just trying to hold on to control of the party and will happily not only sell the vote down the river, but actually what many of those people involved actually believe in. I can't work out which is worse.
2: So um, this weekend, there's another People's Vote March um, following Hot on the Heels of a few weeks ago where they had a wooferendum march with with uh, lots of little spaniels what? decked in EU flags, did you? You must have. Missed I must this. have missed this. I
1: was away for a bit. It,
2: it was, um, yeah, in support of a people's <laughs> vote. They brought a load of dogs to Westminster. I, I mean, this is <laughs> Remainer logic, and it's it's most absurd, I suppose. But um, what do we make of the people's vote march? I mean, Sadiq Khan is attending. Um, all the big Ramona names are attending. Lots of celebrities have actually paid for bus tickets for people to come down to London. So um, hopefully a few Brexiteers have uh, taken the opportunity just to get a free trip off that. <laughs>
1: but any thoughts on the people's vote? Um, I wish they'd give it up. And I think that's the other thing. When we're talking about kind of the shamelessness of a lot of people's responses to the Brexit vote, these people have really got to be at the top of it. At the end of the day, we've said this many times, these are people, many of them very rich people, many of them just very middle-class people, who genuinely think that their own narcissism entitlement and whinging is kind of more important than what 17.4 million people voted for. And I think we're going to see more of that out in force in London this weekend. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give
2: us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Jamal Khasodji, the Washington Post journalist, walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey two weeks ago and never returned. He's suspected to have been tortured and killed by Saudi agents. There's been a great outpouring of anger and shock in the West by this. But Tim, should we be surprised by this kind of behaviour from the Saudis?
0: We're now led to believe that he was tortured and possibly dismembered while alive, uh, and that his remains were then um, dissolved in acid, um, which is going to shock you. But in terms of whether it's out of character for the Saudi regime, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, clearly, it's clearly not. Saudi Arabia has had a long uh, rather sort of autocratic history uh, and it's actually become increasingly sort of autocratic and uh, severe in its punishments of those who dissent uh, since uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman effectively became the de facto leader of uh, Saudi Arabia. I think the UN have actually complained about the systematic torture of uh, dissidents. It has one of the highest execution rates in the world. And those are just the obvious civil rights issues. Of course Saudi Arabia at the same time is responsible for prosecuting one of the most brutal conflicts in the world at the moment in in Yemen. Mm. Uh, 50,000 civilians are known to have died, many millions more are starving and displaced. Um, and Saudi Arabia has, has done all that. Not only Saudi Arabia, but, but uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS for short, as he's rather affectionately known in the West, has been driving that conflict on. It's, it's widely accepted now that he almost unilaterally launched that conflict without consulting senior figures in the Saudi leadership.
2: And yet it's it's strange because this Hasaji incident, as brutal and horrific as it is, does seem to have elicited a a great deal more moral condemnation Mm. than even the conflict in in Yemen or even you know the general problems as you say in in Saudi Arabia it
0: it, it is an interesting question there was a Republican senator who said he'd been one of the staunchest defenders of Saudi Arabia Mm. over the past three or four years but now now they've gone too far that's what he was saying during the past three or four years yeah dropping bombs on me so you know they've devastated uh uh a rather fractured nation,
1: isn't it? On the brink of like the biggest famine, in, world famine for like hundred yeah, well years. Yeah, that,
0: that was the news this week. Mm. Um, that uh, I think th- I think it was the UN reported that it. it's on the on the edge of the world's worst famine in a hundred years. There's just been this kind of um, turning a turning a blind eye to what's mm. been going on, um, and then this, the murder of one journalist or being on foreign soil, has prompted this outpouring of kind of moral indignation. Uh, you've also seen business leaders as well, who, who uh, quite a few senior business figures in the West have pulled out of the so-called Davos in the desert, mm. which is MBS's great sort of showcase for business investment in Saudi Arabia. And they've pulled out, and I forget the name of the businessman who said this, but he said, you have to draw a moral line somewhere. Uh, so it's this, one, it's this one murder of a journalist that's prompted all this. And I keep thinking, why, why, why is that? And I think it's actually because it's quite a easy incident for Saudi Arabia to deal with and also to actually weirdly enough clean up its global image mm. because already you can see the uh, movements towards finding and identifying possible scapegoats you know so you know you can see already that you, there'll be some relatively senior Saudi security officials uh, and diplomats held responsible MBS can even perhaps make a statement saying we will not tolerate this type of behavior mm. on the part of uh, Saudi uh, And then probably statesmen. launch
1: another purge off the back of it, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. I know, but yeah, you b- know. it can almost
0: serve a strange warped
1: PR purpose. Oh, I definitely. And um, but it, it, just to sort of tack onto that, I mean, it is completely shameless, because you've got to remember how much of the West's interests are tied up with Saudi Arabia, you know, both in terms of kind of keeping Iran at bay, um, the West sells a hell of a lot of weapons to Saudi Arabia, which of course are being used to prosecute this war that um, Tim's been sketching out for us in Yemen, um, as well as more broadly having kind of embarrassed themselves by really buying into The other PR offensive recently, which is this MBS rebrand that um, Mm. he is this kind of kinder, gentler despot, as we put it on Spikes a little (laughs) while ago, because he's potentially letting a few more women drive whilst locking up the women who are campaigning to get that change in the law. Um, And it is all just kind of unravelling. But I completely agree with Tim. This is a much safer way of the West kind of trying to demonstrate its moral superiority you know whether it's um, Mike Pence coming out and saying the free world demands answers to this case apparently and none of the others Um, it's just a very easy means through which they can do that similarly that Turkey can even try and claw back some of the moral authority despite the fact that it's been you know locking up journalists in their tens of thousands for quite some time.
2: I just wanted to bring that sort of back to Trump because you know Trump, in his usual shameless self, um, is defending the Saudis. He's tried to compare, you know, this to the Brett Kavanaugh affair, that this is a case of, you know, guilty until proven innocent. And what I find slightly interesting is that clearly Western leaders have been in bed with... um, Saudi Arabia for you know a very long time but have never sought to justify that Mm. publicly and Trump in his you know bashfulness seems to be the only person (laughs) standing up for that um, existing relationship. I mean
1: it's kind of jocular as well I mean some of the press conferences that he's given where he kind of just throws out of a set of kind of MBS-approved opinions as well as just casting enough kind of dust over it to give himself enough cover, saying, it could have been them, I'm not sure. You know, one point (laughs) saying, asking, have you spoken to the leader of Saudi Arabia? I can't answer that question, but yes, I have. It's just this, it's like he's not really fully taking it seriously, which is grim on one level, but also there's at least something, there's at least a kind of honesty to that on some level, I guess, but that doesn't necessarily give him many points. Yeah, no, I think he was pretty honest when he talked
0: about possible punishments because someone said, what about... What about sanctions and what about what about the arms deals? And he said, you know, hold on, hold on a second. You know, mm. uh, they're worth a lot of money uh, to us. You know, a lot of people are employed in in the US uh, making uh, these weapons, which we then sell to Saudi Arabia. Let's let's think about this for a second. And to be honest, you know, we 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 stop giving the Saudi weapons, someone else will do it. Um, so he almost acknowledges the US's um, implication. And you know sheer complicity with Saudi's military militarized behavior. The other thing you always have to remember, because th- th- there has been a tendency, I think, some of the courage to to think that this is Trump's uh, you know almost unique problem. You know, particularly with mm-hmm. Jared Kushner seen as being MBS's kind of semi playmate. Um, <laughs> but it was it was uh, then U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry uh, under under Obama who cultivated MBS mm-hmm. as as what he was to become, you know, uh, our man in, in the Middle East, um, you know, the, the US establishment in very recent history has been completely uh, behind and backing MBS, pushing him forward, you know, even helping him with his English skills. You know, we <laughs> almost can't get too hung up on, on, on Trump's involvement in this whole affair.
2: You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you enjoy the show, why not support us by making a donation? Spike content will always be free, but we rely on our listeners and readers like you to keep producing more of it. If you'd like to make a donation, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren has long claimed to have Native American heritage. In a recent campaign video, she revealed that she had taken a DNA test to prove it. The test showed that she was at least... A thousand and twenty-fourth Native American. <laughs> what do we make of this uh, saga?
1: It's hilarious. Elizabeth Warren heard some kind of family rumour, maybe, that you know, mm. some generations back there was some there was some Cherokee, I think is her specific claim, yeah. um parentage. Um kind of ran with it. But this is something that's she that's been following around for a very long time. So when she was a sort of law professor, um, I think this was revealed in about twenty twelve by the Boston Globe, she listed herself as a minority on a kind of directory (laughs) of um, law professors. She then later on, when when she was working at Harvard Law, they were coming under a lot of pressure for not having enough diversity. Um, And so they pointed to her as an example of a woman of color, on staff. Um, it's only really started to take on since she's entered politics, because I, both of her kind of opponents when she was in her own Senate race, um, as well as later on with Donald Trump have pointed to this. And because she was one of the people from the kind of left of the Democratic Party, who really went for Trump during the um, presidential election, she, she became one of kind of um, Trump's punching bags. He kept referring to her as Pocahontas, or the fake <laughs> Pocahontas. And what was funny was at the time, everyone was saying this is so racist of Donald Trump. This is so ugly. Even though I think most people kind of understand the joke when i really can't think of anything more offensive than trying to really appropriate a lineage that you have really no real claim to i mean i I think from the people who've kind of who actually know something about genetics have written pieces saying that a lot of you know european descended americans have a similar kind of level of um, native american dna so really it does feel like whether she meant to or not she's been trying to kind of piggyback off of native american people and that strikes me as a lot more offensive than donald trump making some pocahontas remarks frankly
0: Again, you have to admire uh, Trump's chutzpah. You know, he's stuck with the Pocahontas jibe for two years. Uh, he's even it's added, one of his best routines. Uh, nobody, I know, but in his tweets, he just puts Pocahontas and in brackets, the, uh, the, the, uh, the bad one referencing Elizabeth, <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. Because he, he ha- I always think he's got like a, sort of like a, a David Brent like tin ear for political correctness. Mm. But in actual fact, I think he's just an arch satirist of, uh, of political correctness. He, <laughs> you know, there have been quite a few arguments about the uh, actual nature of her. Uh, dna inheritance mm. and the, you know the extent to which it's, which it's one was it one 1024 yeah 1024 yeah. yeah.
2: um, well, or that's the lowest band or
1: something. yeah, yeah some say yeah, it could be 164th
0: or yeah. something like mm. that you can know, then you sort of ask yourself the question why does any of it matter in the first place what mm. possible <laughs> what possible role can this tiny tiny portion of dna play in elizabeth warren's thinking life outlook politics or anything
2: it's been interesting to see some of the arguments, though, still around this DNA test, because there's even claims that there simply are not enough um, Native Americans who have given samples to these companies to even guess what Native American DNA looks like. So they've actually had to use samples from mm. Latin America, from Central America to make it up. So it might even be that she's actually a 1024th you know Mexican but we have absolutely no idea well, surely
1: that'd be you know more politically useful for in terms of the fight against Trump but that's the thing <laughs> it, what we're talking about just shows how pointless a lot of this is and it's one thing I mean I'm against the kind of the sort of pork barrel identity politics which is sort of developed around US politics and it's kind of heightened in this new form in recent years is always pretty off-putting you know I think it's one of the things that actually enraged a lot of democratic voters who swung for Trump was that Hillary Clinton at the last election definitely played this role of whilst not claiming any ethnic minority herself obviously um, went around treating them like individual groups who you pledge to understand their pain and suffering and then that's how you kind of cobble together a coalition and that was something which i think put a lot of people off they don't like that kind of divisive politics but it's definitely one thing to say you come from a family who have a certain background a certain culture a certain experience in america and it's an entirely other thing to make incredibly tenuous claims about your lineage just to sound frankly just a little bit more interesting that is the most she could have potentially wanting to be getting gotten out of this and it just seems like when she was called out on it you know a few years ago she's just had to defend it to the hilt <laughs> ever since it's, it's funny but it is as you say kind of it's indicative of a few depressing trends it feels like
2: well what's funny is that the usual suspects who are very hot on the subject of say cultural appropriation who would be furious if someone were to wear a native american headdress at a music festival mm. They've been largely silent in this. I mean, there have been a few people to come out, but it's nowhere near generated the kind of outrage you, you might expect. Mm. And yet this is a woman who is using the you know, historical sufferings, the atrocities committed against Native Americans to bolster her own standing. But I suppose it's overlooked because it's politically convenient i guess
1: and also it just gets to the point where i think a lot of the time when a lot of these kind of very racialized discussions pc discussions kick off and you have a lot of liberals or people who claim to be left-wing um making these kind of strangely reactionary you know racialized arguments about Mm -hmm. offense and um, the differences between cultures etc they often claim to be speaking on behalf of these people as elizabeth warren kind of is um, and really they're not and they don't really care about those people they're just convenient fodder um, and I think it's really interesting as well as you say this, there seems to be very little left liberal outrage at Elizabeth Warren also in the same way you see this disparity as when there was the big argument over whether the Washington Redskins should change their name yeah. or when Coachella go around you know banning Indian Native American headdresses um, the people who are outraged, it's never Native American communities themselves. You know, if anything, there's, they tend to be the people saying, actually, buried in the news reports, we're not that bothered <laughs> about this. So it just, it just shows how topsy-turvy that whole debate can often be. You've been
2: listening to The Spike Podcast. For more Spike content, just go to spiked-online.com. And don't forget to check out The Last Order's podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.